and welcome to Tisky Sour. I'm Moya Lothi McLean, standing in for Michael Walker, who, no fear, will be back in the hot seat very soon. But in the meantime, helping me hold up this fort is the brilliant Ash Sarkar. Ash, thank you for joining me this Friday evening. It's ladies' night, baby. It is indeed, but tonight we will be talking about a lot of men. First up is Rishi Sunak's first foray into foreign diplomacy, as a man's life hangs in the balance. And the so-called fiscal black hole looms large as Kwasi Kwarteng attempts to take control of the pesky we crash the economy narrative. Elon Musk might be killing Twitter. The billionaire took over the social media site last week and since then it's been unbridled chaos at Twitter HQ. On the back end, Musk has cut Twitter staff by 50% while demanding huge changes to the site's key features. These include a new subscription service to verify users called Twitter Blue, which allows anyone who pays $8 a month to obtain a blue tick that will verify their identity. However, a lack of any identity checks when Twitter Blue was rolled out quickly led to some cheeky impersonation. Major companies, including Lockheed Martin, Nintendo and BP, found themselves lampooned by pretty convincing parodies. The mess led to the Twitter blue scheme being paused today. While this was very amusing for many of us watching, big brands have not found themselves as tickled. And that's a problem because 90% of Twitter's revenue comes from advertisers. And these advertisers are now running scared because Musk's personal changes and Twitter layoffs can and are severely impacting the way the site functions. Musk says that Twitter is currently losing about $4 million a day in ad spend and needs to urgently switch to a subscription framework. And in his first ever email to Twitter staff since taking over, the Tesla mogul said this. Frankly, the economic picture ahead is dire, especially for a company like ours that's so dependent on advertising in a challenging economic climate. Moreover, 70% of our advertising is brand rather than specific performance, which makes us doubly vulnerable. That is why the priority over the past 10 days has been to develop and launch Twitter Blue Verified Subscriptions. Huge props to the team. Without significant subscription revenue, there is a good chance Twitter will not survive the upcoming economic downturn. We need roughly half our revenue to be subscription. Sounds like Navara Media. Remember, Musk has poured huge amounts of money into Twitter. He reluctantly ended up buying it for $44 billion after trying to get out of the deal. But his delays cost him more as the debt he leveraged to buy the site ballooned with rising interest rates. In total, he borrowed about $12.7 billion from banks like Morgan Stanley. Twitter itself now has a yearly debt of $1.2 billion and it has to pay it back. It could also be facing billions in fines from the Federal Trade Commission. Musk changes are likely to breach an agreement the company signed with the FTC back in May. And on Wednesday, this prospect led to three of Twitter's top security, safety, and privacy executives to resign. And The Verge reported the company's in-house lawyer is encouraging employees to seek whistleblower protection. But 
Musk's problems aren't just at home. He also funded the deal with billions in backing from some powerful and shady investors, such as Saudi Arabia's Prince Al-Walid bin Talal and Qatar Holding, an investment firm owned by the Qatari state. That led to US President Joe Biden being asked this. Um, Mr. President, do you think Elon Musk is a threat to US national security? And should the US, and with the tools you have, investigate his joint acquisition of Twitter with foreign governments, which include the Saudis? <laughs> I think that Elon Musk's cooperation and or technical relationships with other countries uh, is worthy of being looked at. Whether or not he is doing anything inappropriate, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that it's worth, worth being looked at. Ash, what is Elon Musk doing? Is he deliberately trying to kill Twitter, or is this just the warped world of a billionaire boss meeting that harsh mistress, reality? Well, I think we're seeing the nature of the 21st century's billionaires, which is these aren't necessarily people who are hugely productive, hugely intelligent, who've got phenomenal business brains. What they've been able to do is amass a lot of wealth because interest rates were low, credit was cheap, money was basically free for them. And because of the way in which asset price inflation worked and crucially wasn't taxed, you could build up a lot of wealth very quickly on the back of producing very little. Now, I know this is something that me, Michael and Aaron disagree about an awful lot, which is to what extent is Elon Musk's reputation bullshit and to what extent has he actually produced anything of value with Tesla. But I think the thing that we can see in real time is that his decision making with Twitter is atrociously bad. There's some contextual factors here. The contextual factor, of course, being that this is a bad time for tech. There are layoffs across the industry at Meta. There's a hiring freeze at Amazon. There's also been mass layoffs at Lyft and at Stripe as well. So it would be a bad time for anybody to take over a large tech platform. It would be a really challenging time to uh, take over a large platform because of falling ad revenues in the face of a looming economic crisis. But it's an especially bad time for someone like Elon Musk to do it because he seems to fundamentally misunderstand who his customers are. His customers are not me and you, the average tweeter. Right? His customers are the big brands who generate the ad revenues that keep the company afloat. And what he's done is at every step alienate and denigrate those brands who are his actual customer base. So one thing is by you know doing a bonfire of the payroll getting rid of the personalities who are responsible for things like ad revenue, brand management, security, safety, misinformation, all of those things which reassure a brand that this is a, a safe platform to advertise with. And also the second thing is when ad revenues began to fall because many paused or stopped their relationships with Twitter entirely, 
Elon Musk went on the offensive. He started tweeting all kinds of crap about how activists had put pressure on, I don't know, General Mills or Lockheed Martin to pull their money in line with, you know, woke values. You know, he threatened to go on a naming and shaming spree of those who had caved to what he saw as pressure from the left. Now, that's not how you win people back. The second thing that he's trying to do is turn a section of of his product into a subscription base. So that's people who want to pay for verification, either because they have it already and they don't want to lose it, or because they want they want to you know have access to the prestige that a blue tick implies. Now, again, this is a tricky thing to do because if you're if you're a Twitter user, you're essentially the product. You're the thing which de- generates data which can be packaged up and sold off you're the thing that adverts are targeted to so that you'll spend your money all right it doesn't matter whether you're you know Stephen fry or you know stalin rimmer like 69 you're both essentially courgettes in a farm all right you're the product and in trying to to turn a section of that product into a customer, again, what has Elon Musk done? He has insulted and denigrated those individuals. He's made the blue check mark not really something that you would want to buy because it means that you get something particularly good for it. It's sort of like, ha ha, you're idiots. I'm in control. I can make you do this. Now, there are lots of other social media platforms available, not ones which necessarily do the exact same thing as Twitter, but you don't necessarily have a, a, a massive captive audience outside of, you know, the journalists and the comedians who would really die if that, they weren't using it. That's not enough uh, to sustain a massive multimedia platform. So I don't think that this is deliberate on the part of Elon Musk. I think he really did think he was that smart. But, you know, many people have been brought low by hubris as Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting saw for themselves. Pivoting away from the billionaire's new clothes for a second. Ash, what could Twitter's demise mean for British politics? And should we let it die? I'm probably not the most impartial person to ask because I'm somebody whose career has benefited a lot from Twitter. And I'm also someone who enjoys it a lot. I like what Twitter has done in terms of improving my writing, if not my concentration or indeed my mental health. I think that the impact of Twitter on British politics. I mean, not to sound like someone who's like, in conclusion, it is a land of contrast, but of course it is. It's had so many various effects and then effects of those effects. I think it's hard to to narrow it down into just good or just bad. But I think that it's done one thing which is is really important, which is it's shown us that many of the people who form our ruling class aren't inherently superior. Because the minute you have to see them do their thinking in real time, whether that's an MP or whether that is Laura Koonsberg or Robert Peston working out whether a source is reliable enough to put what they're saying out into the public sphere, you see that actually like these people aren't upholding the values that they're meant to. And a lot of the time aren't, aren't even that smart. And I think that that kind of, I don't know, anti-elitist disenchantment is is inherently a good thing. And now, moving on to our next story. This is Alaa Abdel Fattah, an Egyptian-British activist who has been in prison in Egypt for most of the past nine years. Abdel Fattah was a key pro-democracy voice in the 2011 Egyptian revolution. 
But after the democratically elected government was ousted in a coup in 2013, he's been forced to serve a series of prison sentences. The activist was found guilty of violating protest laws and spreading fake news. Abdel Fattah has been on hunger strike since April of this year and stopped drinking water on Sunday as the COP27 climate summit began. His family now fear he is being force-fed by Egyptian authorities. And his sister has been urging British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to keep lobbying for her brother's release. I'm really worried from these comments that they're, they could be implying that they would be force-feeding Ale. I, I would like to remind that force-feeding is torture and that nothing should happen against Ale's will. My message to Rishi Sunak is, uh, please continue to do your best. I know you can do it. I know you can save him. I don't know what happened when you came here. Uh, I, I, I wasn't told any updates, but I, I still, I still I appreciate your letter to me and... Just please do your best, save this man. Um, I know you can save my brother, uh, so, so just do it. On Tuesday, Egyptian MP Amwar Dawish was removed from a COP27 event after heckling Abdel Al-Fattah's sister, Sunna Saif. To speak to her. I am, I am free to speak to her. I am free to speak to her. Abdel Fattah's case has now been picked up by the British government. Rishi Sunak's office confirmed the Prime Minister had pressed Egyptian President Sisi over the 40-year-old's imprisonment. In a letter to Abdel Fattah's family, he said the case would be a priority for the British government. But Abdel Fattah's sister told BBC Radio 4 earlier this week that turmoil in British politics had hindered her brother's release and that his case only seemed to become urgent when he stopped drinking water. Ash, we don't know much about Rishi Sunak's foreign policy stance as of yet. Is this a major diplomatic test for him? I think it is a major diplomatic test for him. And I wonder if the pressure is there enough to force him to rise to the occasion. I wonder if, if, the, if the pressure is there, because of course, with COP27, it meant that there was the world's attention turned towards Egypt. And then the, the plight of Allah was able to almost reach a kind of critical mass in, in the media. I wonder with, you know, COP drawing to a close and then the focus of the British media really turning back to domestic politics and in particular the economic crisis, whether that creates that little bit of breathing room for Rishi Sunak to essentially go, well, this is quite sticky, this is quite difficult, I don't actually have to do particularly diligent job here. And one of the things that we've seen is that unfortunately, when it comes to jailed dual nationals, the conservative governments of the last few years have really failed to uh, do their duty in terms of securing the release of prisoners 
in a timely fashion. We saw that, of course, with Nazanin, uh, the foreign secretary, of course, who had failed to secure her release and the prime minister who dilly-dallied over securing her release was Boris Johnson. When it comes to Allah, the question is, well, what what was Liz Truss doing all that time preparing for her own bid to become prime minister? International politics and foreign policy has really slipped off the agenda in this country. Uh, and you can tell that because, you know, James Cleverly, what's he spent this week doing? He's done a series of interviews with media, not really about foreign policy issues, but about his wife's struggle with breast cancer. Now, of course, you know, anyone whose spouse is struggling with cancer, that's going to be just, it's such a huge aspect of your life. But it's quite telling that that's what he was being pressed on by uh, Sky News in a, in a way which was very humanizing rather than you know, being pinned down on a case of what are you doing to secure the release of this Egyptian-British dual citizen. So I think that this is a test not just of Rishi Sunak, but also the culture of our media at the moment and whether or not they're willing to spend time talking about foreign policy as well as domestic matters as well. Of course, and we hope that Allah and his family soon get answers and a release. Now, moving on to Kwasi Kwarteng, the shortest lived chancellor in British history. But now he's back. In the first we've seen of him since he was suddenly sacked by Liz Truss, Kwarteng has given an interview to Talk TV. Remember, Truss and Kwarteng crashed the economy, but Kwarteng doesn't quite see it that way. Asked about his sacking, he began by describing the scenes in Downing Street that morning. I got to Downing Street. I went into the cabinet room. The prime minister was quite sort of distressed and uh, you know emotional. And uh, what do so, you mean by distressed? Well, I think she was. You know, she, it was difficult. So, you know, we're friends. We're, we're we're old colleagues. She was in tears. And uh, you know, she was she was very emotional. And I I I was as I am now. I was just speaking because I'd, I'd seen the thing. And I and I said, "You've got. I mean, this is mad. I mean, prime ministers don't get rid of chancellors." Um, and I thought that I, I actually I think said to her at the time. I think I said this is going to last three or four weeks. Little did I know it was only going to be six days. So the Friday I was called in, I was sacked. Uh, she did a press conference on the Friday. And people, and I said to her, I said, people will ask, well, if you sacked the person who was doing what you're, you, you wanted, why are you still there? Um, and of course, with the 25p, that was her, so anyone who paid attention to the leadership contest will know that, that not raising corporation tax, the 25p, was her signature, one of her key policies. That and reversing national insurance were the things she stood for the leadership on. So when she reversed that and basically said, look, we're going to get corporation tax to 25p, and by the way, I'm firing you, um, I was saying, well, everyone knows that that was your policy. And that was, in a way, coming back, I thought, well, she can't fire me for just implementing what she, what she, she campaigned on. And, you know, we had a conversation, uh, and I think it was very much the view that, you know, somehow she, would, she could survive if, you know, if, she, if I took the, 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 the fall on that. So... According to Kwartang, he was just the fall guy who had absolutely no power to influence the economic turn of events. Big, I was just following orders vibes. What he mentions there are the reductions in capital gains tax and national insurance that were included in the mini budget. But what he doesn't mention is the unexpected scrapping of the 45p higher rate of tax. And that was the cause of the trust government's first big economic U-turn, which followed a week of market chaos. Whose fault was that? Well, here's what trust said at the time. Did you discuss scrapping the top rate with your whole cabinet? No. 
Do you no, think we didn't. It was a decision that um, the Chancellor made. Kuatang also went into some detail about the advice he gave to Truss. I think the Prime Minister was very much of the view that we needed to, we needed to, to, to move things fast. But I think, that, I think it was too quick. So you made the argument that the Prime Minister go slower at the time? Well, I said, um, I said actually after the budget, that because we were going very fast. Uh, even after the mini-budget, we were going at breakneck speed. And I said, um, you know, we should slow down. Slow down. And what did she say? And she said, well, I've only got two years. And I said, you'll have two months if you carry on like this. And that's, I'm afraid, what happened. Um, and that was something that I said to her uh, uh, in October, after the mini-budget. So, the pair of them packed the mini-budget with uncosted tax cuts and completely swerved the Office for Budget Responsibilities approval of the plan. And only then, Kuatang said, hey, let's slow down. Not according to the Westminster Press. The Guardian's Pippa Creera posted this. Yet, just two days after the disastrous mini-budget, Kuatang spooked the markets further by saying there is more to come. And Tim Bale, professor of politics at Queen Mary's London, said this. Sorry, but honestly, this really is absolute bollocks and quasi-more tax cuts to come Kuateng. Mate, you needed to warn Liz Truss before your mad mini-budget, not after it. But why worry about whose fault it all was? because Kuateng doesn't think it was such a big deal anyway. You do know that Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are going to certainly, in part, blame you for the depths of what they're going to have to do. I don't, the, you talk about blame and the media. Uh, you know, the, the only thing that they could possibly do is the, is the interest rates. But interest rates have come down. The guilt uh, rates have come down. The black hole and the structural problems are already there. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the, 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 the national debt wasn't created by this trust's 44 days in government. Naturally, the current Chancellor Jeremy Hunt had a different take. Sky asked Hunt for his reaction to Kuatang's claim. Well, all I would say is that uh, when we produced a, a fiscal statement that didn't show how we were going to bring our debts down over the medium term, the markets reacted very badly. And so we've learned that you, you can't fund uh, either, either spending or borrowing uh, without showing how you're going to pay for it. And that's what I'll do. The so-called black hole in the country's finances has become the current government's motivation for swinging tax rises and spending cuts to come. But it's worth noting, not all economists agree that it even exists, including Rishi Sunak's former self as Chancellor of the Exchequer. In a new report, the Progressive Economy Forum argues that what counts as a black hole in the finances shrinks dramatically depending on how you do the accounts. They also argue that the government is misleading the country by pretending it's an absolutely fixed deficit. The report says this. Forecasts from economic models are highly uncertain, but this uncertainty is not being reported properly. The rate of future economic growth, the level of future interest rates, and the nature of the fiscal target will dramatically alter the size of the so-called fiscal hole. Using the Office for Budget Responsibility's own forecasts, we show that estimates of the fiscal hole are highly sensitive to small changes in future growth rates or interest rates. Remarkably, using these forecasts, a black hole as large as 50 billion could be eliminated simply by reverting to the official measure of public debt used 18 months ago, and even 14 billion of extra spending would not bring it back. So, if we calculated the deficit in the way that Rishi Sunak did while he was Chancellor in early 2021, it wouldn't exist. And they conclude with this. 
Any fiscal difficulties that the government currently faces have little to do with control of departmental spending, investment or taxation. Instead, they are based on arbitrary targets and contingent on projected borrowing costs and growth rates, which are both subject to significant levels of uncertainty. It makes no sense to preempt any potential increases in borrowing costs with a return to austerity. We do not know what the cost of government borrowing will be. We do not know what nominal GDP will be. We do, however, know all too well what the cost of austerity will be. Ash, since Margaret Thatcher, the fiscal black hole has loomed large. What impact does this constant austerity rhetoric have on the nation's understanding of the economy? Oh, I mean, how long have you got? I mean, let's first talk about what the black hole is. So I learned this from James Meadway, who's, of course, a very good friend of the show. And what he explained is that what's been calculated as the shortfall of £50 billion is actually a product of a fiscal rule which says that the government has to shrink the ratio of debt to GDP over three years. So if you change that rule. So if you go, okay, well, we're not going to do it in three years, we'll do it in five, or we'll do it in 10, or we'll do it in 15, or maybe we never do it. That's something which then radically changes the shortfall that you're being left with. Now, of course, there are some very good reasons to have fiscal rules. It dictates the price of borrowing, the value of your currency, so on and so forth. But basically, These are rules which are arbitrarily crafted. They're not serving a purpose of helping our economy grow in a way which delivers rising living standards for everybody and not just the super rich. Well, then there's a bit of a problem with your fiscal rule. And that's something which definitely should be open to change. And in terms of that progressive economic forum article, I think it says something really important, which is we know what the price of austerity is because George Osborne cut public spending during a recession. That's what austerity was all about, cutting public spending during the recession in order to, quote unquote, bring our finances under control, reduce the size of the deficit. One is that it didn't actually do a huge amount uh, to the size of the deficit. But what it did do is make sure that our recovery was a lot slower. The recession went on for longer and wages and living standards haven't recovered to pre-crisis levels. So we're in an even worse position now than we would have been had we not had those public spending cuts and in a worse position now than we were before the financial crisis of 2008. And the intellectual scaffolding that makes this possible is this myth that a household budget is just like a national budget. You've got your your income and you've got your outgoings. And if you've got an imbalance between those two things, like a household, you're going to be a bit fucked. Now, this was an imaginative framework which was really perfected by Margaret Thatcher. There's a great essay by Stuart Hall where it describes the way in which she played up her gender in order to uh, make this set of images stick. She talked about how proud she was to be the daughter of a grocer. So you're constantly totting up your son. She said that it's women who know the price of milk. And she would say, you know, many accuse me of preaching the parables of the parlor or the homilies of housekeeping. But I'm, I'm proud to apply the logic of a household budget to a national budget. Now, of course, that's bollocks because nations can 
borrow in ways that household can't. They can structure the repayment of its own national debt in such a way that it doesn't have much of an impact at all on day-to-day spending. We only paid off the money used to um, pay off the slaveholders during the abolition of slavery. We only finally paid that off in 2015 because there was a decision made to pay off that debt very, very slowly. Um, These are all options that are available to national governments. Now, they have different costs, they have different benefits, but to pretend that they don't exist is fundamentally dishonest. And one, one of the problems is that our political media is really invested in promoting these myths as though they're fact. So rather than saying, actually, there's different ways you can look at the economy and maybe in one of them, you don't have to pay for the conservatives' own self-inflicted errors on the backs of ordinary workers. Maybe we could do something else. Rather than saying that and having a national conversation, which meets the needs of the national moment instead they're saying oh look the country's credit card is maxed out again and and, and you go well, well, well maxed out having done what because public services have all been cut over 12 years people's wages haven't gone up over 12 years it's not like we've got phenomenal infrastructure now that we didn't have before it's not like we had retrofitting of houses or or new council house building or high speed rail absolutely everywhere how did we max out this credit card? So, so it's a it's a dishonest public conversation which serves a political ideological purpose. Speaking of dishonest public conversations, there's been a little more news about what Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement will contain. The Times has published this report. The Times has been told that the Prime Minister and his Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, intend to slow increases in spending after 2025 from the planned 3.7% to as little as 1%. The plans will form a major part of the government's attempt to fill a 55 billion black hole in the public finances by 2027 to 2028, saving an estimated 25 billion a year. However, economists said there would be a significant squeeze on spending because the budget's outsized protected areas, such as the NHS, would rise by less than inflation. So this looks like the plan is to cut spending only after the next election, which seems odd if you think that filling the so-called black hole is our biggest economic priority. ITV's Robert Peston had this to say about it. To be clear... Because these cuts are so far away, they both reduce the forecast government deficits to reassure investors and are simultaneously semi-fiction in that economic conditions could be better or worse by then, and there will be a new government with the ability to overwrite them for better or worse. Even so, the symbolism matters because if you work in the public sector, it will reinforce your gloom that your own pay will underperform the private sector for many years and you will doubt your particular service, schools, hospitals, law and order, will ever have the resources to meet public expectations on quality, efficacy and timeliness, especially since there'll be significant and painful cuts in capital spending. So, in other words, announcing real-term spending cuts that you never actually intend is absolutely fine because it calms the markets, according to Peston. The spectre of basic public services not delivering an adequate service is merely small and symbolic price to pay to keep investors happy. Except it isn't just symbolic. 
because banning, banging the austerity drum for the sake of the markets also means the government ties its hands when it comes to increasing spending when it's needed, even for hungry kids. The Guardian reports this. Teachers reveal scale of pupils' hunger as 100,000 frozen out of free school meals. The government has frozen the maximum a household can earn to qualify for free school meals at 7,400. But the Liberal Democrats have shown that not increasing the maximum inflation has excluded 110,000 children from getting the meals that they need. And this matches reports coming in from teachers. The Guardian again reports this. School leaders say they are shocked by the pitiful packed lunches they are seeing in classrooms as desperate parents struggle to feed their children. One pupil brought in a cupful of leftover plain rice and another brought nothing but a small tub of dry breakfast cereal. Others come to school with a single chocolate bar after parents give them a pound to buy something for lunch, while many from low-income families arrive in class tired and listless because their stomachs are empty. They say parents are not only struggling to feed their children, keeping school uniforms clean is also a challenge, with some pupils arriving in damp blazers because their homes are too cold to dry washed clothes. Teachers discreetly take wet clothes away and dry them during the school day. Ash, if super turbo austerity isn't actually being played out until 2025, and that's if the Tories win the election, what is the political function of hanging over the public's heads? Well, it's twofold. One is that it puts Labour in the position of, are you going to keep these planned spending cuts in the name of financial good sense and probity? So that becomes a stick with which to beat Labour. And unless Keir Starmer is willing to put forward an economic vision which is compelling and constructive and different from the Tories, I think that is in danger of beating Starmer and Reeves into some kind of submission. And I think that what it also does is that it lowers people's expectations of the state even further. Because I think one of the things that we we don't talk about so much is how we've all been changed by 12 years of austerity, 12 years of austerity, which had, you know, come after, you know, three, three and a bit decades of neoliberalism, an ideological commitment to a smaller state, is that actually we got used to decline. And it was just the speed of decline that we were all arguing about in politics. So it wasn't that, okay, well, why don't we have um, free public transport for everybody and we'll pay for it by taxing this element of wealth? Or I know, why don't we, why don't we have um, a system of free childcare and we'll pay for it out of corporation tax or whatever it might be? The conversation really shifted away from anything that could tangibly and dramatically improve living standards towards, well, we're going to be a bit less bad than the other lot, but 
but don't expect too much. And that was the exact tone of Rishi Sunak's first major interview as prime minister with the Times. He said, well, you can't expect the state to, to solve all your problems. Well, hang on, you guys in government have caused an awful lot of problems. And now you're saying that we can't expect you to, to even deal with them, let alone the ones which have gone unaddressed and left to metastatize for, for decades. So so I think that that's what part of the function is, that it services as a, as a disciplining tool for labor. But I think it also serves to really constrain people's expectations for what governments are supposed to do. Right, time for our next story. Talking of egocentric wins, the Justice Secretary and Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab, is the latest Tory minister to be hit by accusations of bullying. The Guardian has reported this. Ministry of Justice staff offered root out amid concerns over Dominic Raab behaviour. Exclusive, some civil servants may still have still been traumatised by his previous stint there, sources say. According to the article, during his previous stint as Justice Secretary under Boris Johnson, Raab was such a monster that civil servants who had worked with him were offered, quote, respite or a route out of the department after Rishi Sunak reappointed him to the role. The article goes on to report this. Several sources told The Guardian that about 15 staff from the Justice Secretary's private office were taken into a room where departmental chiefs acknowledged they may be anxious about his behaviour and gave them the option of moving roles. Some of the civil servants were said to have been in tears during the meeting and several subsequently decided to move to other positions in the department with one thought to be considering leaving entirely, although sources suggested a couple of staff had since returned. So, how bad was Raab's behaviour? Three Ministry of Justice insiders who worked with Raab told The Guardian this. On more than one occasion, I saw him blow up at civil servants, sometimes very senior ones, in meetings. While he was demanding, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, the way he spoke to people was uncomfortable to witness. He was very rude and aggressive. Another civil servant said this. His behavior was demeaning rather than demanding. You get into bullying territory because it's systemic and sustained and creates a culture of fear in the department. But even if you could somehow argue that what he's doing isn't bullying, it's certainly not professional. And a third civil servant said this. They'll try to say he just drives the department very hard to get results, but he frequently belittled and undermined us. It wasn't just that he was unprofessional, he was a bully. The atmosphere when he came back was terrible. Rob is only the latest in a long line of Tory ministers to behave like a lunatic. Last week, last year, in fact, Boris Johnson refused to sanction the Home Secretary Priti Patel for bullying civil servants. This year, Home Secretary Suella Braverman broke the ministerial code six times and somehow still managed to regain her ministerial post. And only this week, Tory MP Sir Gavin Williamson was forced to pack up his pet tarantula, Cronus, after resigning as cabinet minister. He was made to walk after it had merged. He bullied and harassed fellow MPs and civil servants in telling one, including telling one that she should kill herself. But those are only the ones we know about. 
And this kind of behaviour isn't limited to the Tories. Labour MP Charlotte Nichols has appeared on Radio 5 Live where she was asked this. Can you give me an idea of what it is like for you, a new MP, to be in Westminster and what you're witnessing in terms of that toxicity? I think a lot of it is um, people that we all know about and are spoken about quite openly who have um, either been involved in bullying or um, sexual misconduct. Uh, We all know and nothing is done and they continue to walk around and do their jobs and there's that kind of culture of impunity on it. Do you avoid them? Yes. And everyone has a kind of whisper network list of the people to avoid. But the problem is that some of the most dangerous people are people who would be the people you least suspect. Whisper network? Mm. What is that? So uh, when I first came into Parliament, um, there was a group of people that I knew who kind of sat me down and gave me a list of MPs who I should never accept a drink from, who I should never be alone with, who I should never get in a lift with, and who I should try to avoid as far as possible to keep myself safe. How did you react? I think I was quite staggered at how long the list was. Um, You know, obviously there are only 650 members of parliament. Um, You know, when you're looking at proportions of people who are kind of known dangers, that's really quite frightening. And as I said, there are people who get added to that list all the time. How long's the list? Uh, There's about 40 MPs on it. Why is this the first time I'm hearing about this? Perhaps you're not on the Whisper Network. But no, I'm not on the, I'm but, not on the Whisper but, yeah, Network. I, I, I'm, an, yeah. I'm a member of, I'm a citizen of this country. Yeah. I'm part of the electorate. I think it's one of those things that, given the independent grievance scheme process in Parliament has dished out bigger punishments for people who've been accused of misuse of common stationery than they have for people that have been accused of sexual misconduct or bullying, I think it's very clear that a lot of people won't take those names forward through the schemes that we've got for redress because they think that an MP getting a two-day suspension for bullying, for example, is no deterrent whatsoever. And so rather than go through that process, they warn other staffers about that person or they warn people in the party or they tell the whips or they try to go through the party's processes All of those things mean that, as I said, those people just continue to operate in Parliament with impunity. And until schemes like the ICGS have some proper teeth, and until we start to see some of these names dealt with and people given, you know, proper punishments, including being suspended from the House or having their seats taken off them, that overall culture is not going to improve. Is Naga Manchetti being a little disingenuous there? It's certainly not the first time the Westminster Whisper List has been reported. In the wake of Me Too in late 2017, the existence of a spreadsheet of sex pests was widely reported everywhere from The Guardian to The Spectator. And while it was reported to specifically focus on Tory MPs at that time, this is by no means the first we're hearing of an unsafe culture in Westminster. Reports of abuse of power regularly reach the press. But the real question I want to ask you, Ash, is why do MPs put up with this kind of behaviour and why do we? The reason why this behaviour finds sanctuary within Westminster is because of just how transactional parliamentary politics is. 
And that's at every level. You're dependent on more senior MPs and cabinet ministers for advancement in your career. If you're a new MP, you can become very isolated and unsupported within the party if you're someone who's seen to kick up too much trouble. And also, this isn't just MPs, by the way, this also applies to, you know, uh, political advisors and special advisors as well. It's highly transactional. So if there's somebody in a position of power who is abusing that power, behaving in ways which are inappropriate or threatening or bullying, there are active incentives to minimize that as much as you can. So to control your own exposure to it and to not actually deal with the root cause of the problem. But that transactional nature of Westminster politics doesn't just apply to people who are career political operators. It also applies to the media. And that's why I thought it was really disingenuous for Nagamanchetti to say, well, you know, I'm just part of the electorate. The fact is, is that very often Westminster journalists are well aware of misconduct, of uh, wrongdoing, of bad behavior, and they are well aware of rumors and they're also often and some also sometimes uh, witnesses to the wrongdoing themselves and they don't report it they simply don't report it and i'll give you a concrete example of this happening neil coyle last year or was it earlier this year i can't remember he was in one of the house of commons bar and and he racially abused a a journalist who had some Chinese heritage. And he said something along the lines of, you know, you look like you've been, uh, you've been giving a renminbi to Barry Gardner. So it was an explicit reference to his Chinese heritage. And when this came out, because the journalist in question, Henry Dyer, I think was really brave and, and went public about what happened, you suddenly had an outpouring of lobby journalists going, oh, well, everyone knows that Neil Coyle shouldn't have been in, it shouldn't have even been in Westminster for many years. Everyone knows that open secret. Well, hang on, if it was such an open secret and there is this well-known pattern of aggressive or inappropriate or drunken behavior, why haven't you said anything about it before? The fact is, is that Neil Coyle was a useful source for many people in the lobby because he was firmly anti-Corbyn. He was someone who could be relied on as a labor source for anti-Corbyn stories. He was someone who could keep that whole circus going. And so he was treated as a credible source. And there was a blind eye turned to his pattern of wrongdoing. And that's why I find it so hard to believe that only now journalists are going, hang on. Gavin Williamson, that guy kept a tarantula on his desk and, you know, posed for a photo shoot with a little red book on top of a whip in order to sort of give the message of don't sack me, I know all your secrets. Hang on. He's a really nasty bastard. And this is the first time we'll have been able to, to prove it and, and, you know, get it through the legal department. I don't buy it. It's only now it's become politically expedient because this is a conservative government, which is burned an awful lot of his credibility with Liz Truss and Boris Johnson one after the other. And now the lobby are reporting on stories that otherwise they would have considered not being worth their time digging into because that wasn't considered the story. You know, the story was was largely anti-Labour stuff and wrongdoing within the Conservative Party was either kind of like, you know, tee-hee giggled at or indeed just 
swept under the carpet. And I think this is a similar thing with Dominic Raab. There have been rumors about Dominic Raab's aggressive behavior flying around Westminster for years. And if somebody like me knows them, and Moya, you know me, I'm not someone who is in Westminster particularly often, maybe once a month, once every two months, I'm certainly not swanning around parliamentary estate because I don't have a pass. If I know about these rumors, someone who is on the parliamentary estate day in, day out, who's mingling with MPs in the lobby and in the bars, they're going to know about it too. I totally agree. And the Westminster sex pest spreadsheet actually did circulate on social media in 2017. I remember it very well. And the question that you picked up on there, Ash, about whether political journalism is fit for purpose is one we have actually explored on Navarra Media. And if you want to watch back that panel, which we did recently at The World Transformed, you can watch it by heading to our YouTube channel and clicking on Is Political Journalism Broken? So, that is it for our show tonight. And I want to say a huge thank you for joining me, Ash, and lending your brilliant brain to the program. I also just got to say, you are such a natural host, Moya. If I was Michael Walker, I'd be looking at this live stream with a looming sense of dread. I think you did a spectacular job. I know for a fact Michael Walker is not watching this live stream and I think his job is very safe until people start taking fan art of me on protests. And I want to thank you all at home for tuning in tonight and make sure to come back on Monday at 7pm when the man himself, Michael Walker, will be back. But for now, you have been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.